Hey there, friends. Welcome to the What Had Happened Was podcast. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. And boy, do I have a fun show for you today. I took a trip down memory lane with local broadcasting pioneer Ronita Hot Sanders. She's someone I've watched from afar for years and years and years. I was so glad to finally sit down and have a conversation with her. We went in all directions, some of which I did not expect. We talked about her 10-year fight to get her radio station going, cross burnings in her family's yard, her fierce mama, and what makes DC DC a gem that has kept shining for 50 years. And there's all sorts of cool advice that Renita got that she shares with us. You're going to love this episode. Trust and believe. The What Had Happened Was podcast is sponsored by Cox Digital Marketing. This trusted and reliable advertising leader wants to find a digital strategy that fits your needs. Help a sister out by rating this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you can get the latest episodes on your smart device, laptop, or desktop. Do people still use desktops? I don't know. Anyway, upwards and onwards. Here's my talk with Ronita. So you ready to rock and roll? I'm ready to rock and roll. Okay. So thanks a lot for coming in. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. The name of the show is What Had Happened Was. I'm going to ask you what had happened was. Hmm. (laughs) What had happened was. Exactly. What had happened was. (laughs) Okay. So what had happened was that um, Ronita is speaking in third person. It's a person who really believes what people tell her. Trusting. So what had happened was. I was naive, I believe what people told me, and I didn't always pay attention to the signs. So what had happened was the fact that the little naive girl grew up. Boom, mic drop. (laughs) Now where'd you grow up? You grew up in West Staten, but where? I grew up in Residence Park. Uh, First, when I was, (laughs) I I laugh about this, because I said when I was born, I was born on Home Avenue in West Dayton, and then we moved to Residence Park in the mid-50s. My parents were in real estate. Okay. And so um, Dayton at that time was a very, very segregated community. We were Still is in a lot of ways. It is still in a lot of ways. And we were one of the first black families in, um, in Residence Park. And so I was this only little black child at Residence Park Elementary School back in the mid fifties. What and was that like? Being like the only only one? Did you know you were the only one at the time? Um, well, I, I didn't. I did not know at the time. Um, I, I was in the second grade, and I didn't know at the time that there was this problem with race in our country. But I think about it because uh, I, I call myself a civil rights child. My parents were very active in civil rights, and because. My parents were in real estate and they decided that they were going to move the family into this all white neighborhood. We had what I call the first experience for for me as a child to understand there is something different. I had gone to school before with black children and with white children. Mm -hmm. In my new school, I was the only black child. The white kids didn't like me and the white kids were calling me names and my white teachers were not kind to me. And I didn't understand that. My parents had to have what I call another kind of real conversation um, with me. And what was that like, that conversation? What did they say to you? Well, what I remember, um, I was seven. Seven, okay. So, so what I remember from that was I had a teacher who kept me after school my very first day in her class because I didn't know the spelling words. Well, I'm brand new. 
You're seven years old, right? Brand new, brand mm-hmm. new. And and so um, my mother was outside waiting for me. I, I didn't come out, so my mother comes in very concerned. And I remember that my mother was my mother's short. She's four mm-hmm. <laughs> eleven, and and she was asking the teacher what was what was the problem. And the teacher talked very negatively uh, about me. And honestly, Amelia, I saw my little four foot mother, four four foot eleven inch mother, just really kind of rise up to this teacher oh, and really? tell her. Yeah that her daughter deserved to be here. Her parents had bought this home. This mm-hmm. was public education. And she went through, and I, I, I'm, I'm crying because I'm, I'm watching this. I remember that, that experience because I always kind of thought I was a pretty good student because before I could answer the questions right. and I made good grades. And, and uh, so that's the first time I really understood there's a difference because I didn't know why the kids called me names and didn't like me. But then again, things going on in this country at that particular time, we had people that burned crosses in our yard. In your parents' we had, yard. In my parents' yard. Wow. We had people, um, the little neighborhood, neighborhood kids couldn't talk to me. We had people at that particular time that shot, um, had um, talked about the Ku Klux Klan was going to get us. Really? So those experiences really, I think, sort of was burned in my brain, in my head a little bit about the difference. But my parents being civil rights advocates, we did a lot names? of marching. Uh, my mother uh, is Rosa Hawes, Rosa Jones Hawes, and my father's Frank Hawes, Frank and Rosa Hawes. And they worked first for Francis Realty, mm-hmm. and then they had Hawes Realty. And so they, they did a lot of work in uh, the civil rights movement here. They worked a lot with CORE, um, mm-hmm. the Congress for Racial Equality. My parents were very active with uh, very good friends to the McIntoshes that okay. were here. And so, yeah, and she so just recently passed. She did, mm-hmm. yes, Mrs. McIntosh. And so I, I, I grew up with, uh, with the family and with the kids. And I, I grew up marching and I grew up singing the civil oh, rights wow. songs. I didn't know exactly what that meant. But we were right there. My mother was arrested several times, both here and nationally. Really? Uh, she, wow. Yeah, yeah. So when I say I'm a civil rights child, what you I mean is I, I, I had the experiences, not always understanding, but always having a real strong sense of our right to be who we are, mm-hmm. what we are, and the fact that there is a problem in this country. So when your parents were doing all that, what, what do you, you, you remember what you thought about it? Were you like... Um happy that they were out there fighting a good fight or were you kind of like wanting them to maybe not be so out there? I think it had to be hard for for a child. Well, when I, when I look back on it, um, I remember thinking that that's a hard childhood to have. Uh Um, The fear. Uh, My father was working, he he worked for General Motors, so he was working overnight. And so he had to, he had to leave his, his job working overnights and asked to be put on daytime mm-hmm. schedule so that he could protect his family. Really? And Gosh, so, man. and so um, I, I just remember daddy talking about being able to, to have, uh, to have a gun. And so when someone would come oh. and they would shoot, we didn't know if they were shooting. I, I didn't know if they were shooting at the house. My father takes a gun and he goes outside. Right. I remember that, but he was shooting up in the air. He said he wanted the folks to know that we had a right to be there they were not going to make us move. Intimidation. And uh, the policemen would come to our, our home. The, the white police officers would come to our home and they would tell us, they don't want you in this neighborhood. You don't need to be here. You need to move. So what, what I began to understand because of the conversations that, that my parents would have is that we have a right to be here. Right. My parents are working every day and no one has the right to stop you from going to school, from being in the neighborhood, for buying your home. 
Mm-hmm. And so every time my father and or mother would really be in <laughs> be in a neighborhood where they had moved a black family in, there would be a different kind of experience that we would have to help and go through. So I learned a sense of social responsibility okay. at that particular time. And I can I can say now I'm glad I had the experience because it, I think it made me very sensitive to the fact that there is a difference and a problem in this question, this country. I didn't right. know what it was, mm-hmm. but it also allowed me, I think, to have a voice to know that I have to stand up for myself. And when you when you think about your life, your education, all of the wonderful opportunities that come your way, but also the roadblocks and the challenges, what is it that gives you the courage to be who you are and to be able to stand up? What is it that gives you the sensibility to know that there are good white people and there are other kinds of white right. people? What is it that makes you comfortable in all settings? I believe it's those lessons that really helped me to have voice and to be able to think that I could do things that maybe other people would have been a, a little bit afraid of or challenged mm-hmm. because like we came through fear. Yeah. So and then that kind of helped you say, well, I can be on the theater. I can be on TV. I can be on the radio. I can handle fear. Right. I can handle uh-huh. fear. And, and, and then that other lesson, that lesson of be your best self, be your best self. And I, and I'm grateful for that. I don't have to be, I don't have to be better than everybody else. I have to be my best self. Do what I do in terms of me and my skill sets. What is, what is it that God has given you, what is it that God has given me? Right. Take that and move it forward. And one of my, oh, one of the lessons, and I, I tell my daughter this, I have um, a daughter, and when she was young, I would say, Grandmommy would say to me all the time, don't compare yourself to anybody else. Compare yourself to you. That's a great thing to tell a child. You know, I mean, right. yeah, because there'll always be people smarter, but people who are taller. less smart, taller, prettier. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. what about okay. you? What about you? And so I, I would remember that and remember that and remember that and think, okay, I can do this. I can try this. And sometimes I succeeded. Sometimes I didn't. I pick myself up, dust myself off and get going again. Okay, so your family moves in. What, what happened to the neighborhood? <laughs> well, the neighborhood changed from an all white neighborhood to eventually an all black neighborhood. What's so interesting is they were building a new high school in the community, Nettie Lee Roth High School, and they were building it for the white community. By the time <laughs> I got to high school, it was predominantly a black high school. Um, and so they, they, they left. Um, and, and this was a working class neighborhood. So I'm not sure where they left and where they went, but Residence Park changed over. And um, one of the other neighborhoods that uh, my parents sold homes, Townview. Townview was white at the time. Daddy sold a couple of houses there. And then it became a black neighborhood as well. And that's what happened. Pockets through pockets of pockets throughout the community. And what I learned is, when I look back on it, is the fact that when people don't want to be around you, I don't care what level of education or what kind of resources, they will leave. They'll just get away because they just don't want to be around certain people, those mm-hmm. kind of people or whatever. It's yeah. hard for a child to be able to to understand that. I didn't understand it back then. Well, I think it's hard for an adult to understand it. It's like, I don't understand that... Um I mean, I guess, obviously, I understand it, but, like, just to be a person, I don't understand being that judgmental or cruel to another human being or hate. I don't understand hate. I mean, obviously, intellectually, I understand hate, but there's a level of understanding I just don't get. I just don't get it. Well, what we know today that I'm not sure that we knew or discussed a whole lot back then um, is the fact that it has a whole lot to do with how you see yourself and how you love yourself or you don't love yourself. I, I remember at one point looking at white Southern Christians 
and wondering how they could have done some of the cruel things in the name of the Lord. Right. And including the burning the cross. You're burning the cross in somebody's yard and you're a Christian. It's like. Or hanging people. I mean, hang, people, hang, yeah. you know, just, just, burning just people, burning, burning people. Houses. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, because, uh, you know, my God would not think that that is something that a Christian could do. Mm. So, um, it's, it's, uh, life is a journey and there are a lot of lessons and we're all very, very different. I'm also an eternal optimist and I believe that in the end, good will win out. I just believe. Just popping in real quick to remind you that you're listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm going to get back to that talk with Ronita in just a few seconds. She's going to let us know how she got from being a little girl in West Staten to a journalist, to a station owner, to a woman who now is the director of the Dayton Contemporary Dance Company. Great story coming ahead. But first, I want to tell you about your number one stop for what to do, what to know, and what to love. And that place is Dayton.com. We let you know all the places to eat, all the things to do to keep yourself busy and entertained and all that good stuff. We also tell you about some really fascinating people in this city. The Gym City is filled with gyms on Dayton.com. They shine. I'm not only saying that because I work there. Nope, we'll say it anyway. Dayton.com is your source for what to do, what to know, and what to love about Dayton. And one of those things I hope you love is this podcast. If you want to be a part of this podcast, there's a couple cool ways to do it. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to the finest podcast. You can also uh, tell your friends all about it. And if you're really bold, you can become a supporter of this podcast by becoming a sponsor. Join Cox Digital Marketing. This trusted and reliable advertising leader wants to find a digital solution that fits your needs. Back to my talk with Ronita. So your parents are these civil rights activists. Yes. What, what did their parents do? Were they were they here? Were they in the south? No, my, my, my mother was one of 11 children from Kentucky. Okay. She moved to, um, to Dayton to actually live with an aunt and uncle who wanted her to be educated at Roosevelt High School, which was just integrating at that particular mm-hmm. time. This was in the 40s. And so um, they had built this beautiful new school on West 3rd Street in Dayton. And so my great aunt and uncle, her aunt and uncle said, um, Rose's, she was the oldest girl in the family. And um, my mother was was a smart little girl. She was going to school at Lincoln Institute in Kentucky, which was an all black boarding high school for black children. That's cool. And so, um, but my grandmother was an advocate for education. And so this goes way back. So this this goes way back. And so um, my mother moved here and stayed with her aunt and uncle. My father is from Alabama. My father's family is from Alabama. Um, My grandfather uh, wanted to have a a better life for his kids. Their mother had died. And so I had an aunt that was, uh, had moved here to Dayton. And so she moved the family here. And so my uncles and aunts and everybody moved my parents met at church here, St. Luke um, Baptist <laughs> Church in, uh, in, in West Dayton at that particular time. The church was over on Lakeview. Eventually, they, they got married young, and they had me, and things moved forward. Now, are you the only child, or are you? I have a brother, but he's 13 years younger than I am. He's my baby brother. Baby <laughs> His name is Frederick. <laughs> Frederick, yeah. yeah he's he's um, Frederick Hawes. So he is, he is here, but there's 13 years difference. And so I always tease him and say, you know, you came along later, so you were raised differently. I had, you know, I had a different kind of life and a different kind of childhood. You got the crosses was, burned uh, on the... the I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. And, and what's funny is you don't, really don't think about the differential until there is, uh, my father passed away a number of years ago, and we were sitting down, we were talking about our childhood, I'm listening to him, 
I always thought his childhood was so different than mine. But yes, looking at the photographs and going through those memories, Mm -hmm. because of course, him coming along later um, allowed him to not only have a sister who graduated from school and could also help him through certain kinds of things. You know, those of us who were only children at the time, <laughs> not so much, but uh, yes. Yeah, if your um, brother or sister is eight, eight or more years younger than you. Only child. Like, yeah, you're only every, child. Yeah, so he was raised like an only child with an older sister who had resources and was in media, so that was kind of cool for him. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're somebody I've always, like, looked up to. You probably didn't know except looking from afar, but, like, as a person <laughs> in media who has done a lot of different things, uh, did you set out to be a journalist? or? or uh, um, no, no, no. Okay. Um, but but thank you for that. That's very kind of you. Uh, I have been around a long time, so that's, uh, that's a true blessing and a part of what I consider God's grace um, to sort of do what you want to do or love to do. But I actually, I'm from Dayton. I lived in West Dayton and left here, went to college, and I actually studied theater, theater, film, and English. And then I was doing an internship during my junior year in college at Denison University, went to New York, and I began to learn something about the backstage, back scenes, the difficulty that uh, folks in theater had in all of what's going on in the background of the theater productions in New York City. And uh, I was just naive enough to to think that uh, when I finished whatever I was going to do in college. um, What were you studying? I was studying I was studying theater and and, and black theater. And um, this was in the late 60s, early 70s. So I'm, I'm long time ago, uh, really interested in, in, in black theater and black film at that particular time. But the things that I found out during my internship made me feel like this uh, Midwestern child from Dayton, Ohio, mm-hmm. might not want to be in New York City starving and going through <laughs> what you have to go through right. after a college education. So I went back to went back to school. Um, at the time, my, my boyfriend was working at a TV station and he said, why don't you think about media? And I thought, oh, no. Theater is like right in your face. Theater it's is life. right there. It's yes. And when I think about media, broadcasting, television, it, it's cameras, it's it's a whole different kind of yeah. thing. And he said, Well, come down to the station and talk to some people. And and I did. Actually, I then uh, went to grad school at Ohio State. I had a chance to work at WOSU TV and I started learning about media. So when I got out of uh, got out of grad school, I started working at Channel Two here in media, and um, really loved television at that particular time. So mm-hmm. I learned something about myself. That is the fact that you may have one love, mm-hmm. but if you explore other possibilities, then other things may open up for you. My very first, what I call real job out of uh, out of grad school, was uh, working at Channel Two here in Dayton. Were and you on air? I was um, producing and I was doing on air and I was doing community service work. So at that time, I was working for a new department. Ed Hamlin, who was a former newsman here in Dayton, is the person who had started their community relations department. So I was working as the assistant director of community relations for him, right doing college, anything wow. and everything. But it was it was what I call the the glorified job, but it gave me a great opportunity to kind of learn the business. And while I was doing that, mm-hmm. so I was doing some things on air and, and behind the scenes and doing a little bit of producing, I, I got a call from one of the local radio stations that said, we are uh, we have this new talk show and we want to know if you might be interested in being part-time co-host. That then 
expanded my knowledge base, mm-hmm. Amelia. And um, I started doing talk radio and I loved that too. And I actually, and I think about this because the theater of the mind is so very important, as you know, as a, right. as a journalist. So being able to take words and to allow people to understand what's going on and to have images, I found that even a little more challenging than I had found television. Really? And so it was, it was kind of was? interesting. I think because of my whole creative experience that I had had growing up in theater. I mean, I was, I always loved theater from a little, a little child mm-hmm. all the way through. And I think that being able to use words and being expressive in a different kind of way without pictures right, in a right. sense the sound is, really the sound is yes really stretch my imagination and my creativity mm-hmm. and so I loved it loved it loved it and so um when I had the opportunity to kind of move forward in the radio industry I decided to do that so you, so you, so you go to college come back come home working working work work in in your t- hometown yeah, yeah work in my hometown is that hard to do because I don't you know my, my hometown is Cleveland so mm-hmm. like if somebody asked me this the other day was it, is it hard to cover people you know and people places you um with? yes and no um and when I say that is um the the way that I actually got into um to radio station ownership which was um something that was a dream of mine because my parents were in business and I had thought I would come home get a little bit of experience and then go to a big city go to Chicago go to DC I think about the places that I had tried to get jobs at different times and uh, it didn't work out that the job that I was going after that I could sort of move into that job in those cities at that particular time but here in Dayton um, I would receive what I think, um, what I call the real feedback, because when people know you, they're going to tell you what they think. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. And so um, I had to learn the thick skin um, when people had gone to school with you or just just whatever it is. So you you learn, again, another life lesson is that people are going to criticize you if you do something or they're going to criticize you if you do nothing. If you're going to be in the glass bowl that we are in, those of us who choose to be in in broadcasting and journalism, then understand what the criticism really is. Sometimes it is about you and the product of your work. Sometimes it's all about them. And so you have to have that filter and figure it out. So I think that was good for me because I had to do that very quickly because I was young when right. I, when, when I started here, um, really in media. I had attended a broadcast seminar and the facilitator at the time said that Dayton was an under-media market. This was in the early 80s. I didn't know what that meant. We had newspapers, we had right. TV stations, and he... So afterwards, I went up to him and I said, um, I really enjoyed your presentation. You said under-media. I don't know what that, that phrase means. Right. And he said, for a city your size in other comparative cities in the United States, you don't have the number of TV outlets, stations, radio uh-huh. stations, and outlets. And I said, really? Wow, I didn't know that. Um, how do you then bring a new facility, a new TV station or radio station to your city. And he explained to me a process that you petition to the FCC, you find a frequency, and you go through all of these different At steps. At this point, had you had in your mind that you are going to start your own radio, sh- no, radio station? No, no, I had not. Okay. The only thing I had in my mind was the fact that Mommy and Daddy always said to me, that at some point having your own allows you to have more freedom to be who you are and what you are. Oh my goodness. And you can wow. be able to give other people opportunities. Whatever having your own men. Oh they did. They, I, I, I was I yes. Yeah. My brother and I talk about that. Yeah. And and people who know them because they sort of adopted various people in the community, but a lot of life lessons. So but having my own did not necessarily mean a radio station or a TV station. Mm-hmm. It could have could have meant a real estate company because I did have my real estate license. It could have been Anything, but but just understand that because then you have 
the opportunity to be able to have your own destiny and to be able to help some other folks. Steer your own boat. Absolutely. But there's a lot of responsibility to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so I, I, uh, I listened to the, um, the facilitator and then I called up a friend of mine that I'd gone to college with who was an FCC attorney, told him about the presentation. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I said, maybe, um, maybe you own a station, maybe a TV station, maybe How a radio station. Um, this was in the 80s, so I was uh, in my early 30s. Okay, so you're a young woman. Mm-hmm. Yep, and mm-hmm. so um, so he said, I tell you what, if you're really interested in this, come to Washington, talk to me, and we'll see what we can do. And so I did, and he explained the process of filing for a petition for the FCC. We had to uh, hire an engineering firm, and I got, got interested. I got kind of fascinated mm-hmm. with this. Simultaneously, the Congress was looking at the number of African Americans and women who are in ownership. Okay, and, and it was like very, 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 exactly. exactly. Yeah, very, very, very small number. number. And mm-hmm. so I thought, oh, wow, this is an opportunity. And, and he, it was funny, the uh, attorney sent me this big packet of information. I highlighted it and read through it. A little, I'm a little bit of a nerd <laughs> in terms of, of uh, researching things well, you can come before over internet. And some stuff for me too. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? Because I mean, I, I I just looked at all this stuff and I highlighted it, and um, then I called him up and I said, I've read all the stuff that you sent me. I have questions. He goes, You read all of that? And I said, Yeah, I'm kind of fascinated. I want to do this. And he said, I haven't even read all that stuff. So. Um, <laughs> And that began what I really consider to be part of uh, uh, life's journey and destiny in terms of the beginning of the process. It took me 10 years from the time that that conversation took place to learn the process, to find the investors. And what happens is, is you know, the airwaves really are supposed to be for the public interest. And, right. and so you can't just start a company. You have to petition. You have to go before the FCC. Well, then you open up the frequency and at this particular time, they were looking. Um, you started from was, scratch, right? I started from scratch. I built it from the ground up. They had looked at low-power um, FM stations, which is what I petitioned for. But then you opened it up. And so then several other companies then petitioned for the same frequency that I found. Really? Because then you have to prove your worthiness. Wait you, a have, you, you come up with it. You say, I want this frequency. Then other, once you bring it up, other people see it. Well, yes, because it's, it's part of the public. Because public interest, you know, the... The public is supposed to own the airways. This is also, this yeah, is right. before they, cable. Right, now, your yeah. cable was different. You know, the whole cable industry had not even been <laughs> created yet. Right. <laughs> okay. I studied the cable industry and the possibilities when I was in grad school. So that's a long time ago. Uh-huh. Anyway, so so several companies filed for the same petition that that I did, and we we got into a battle, uh, a court battle. Wow. And you have to prove your worthiness. Well, the, the FCC was looking for, they were looking for females. They were looking for minorities. They were looking for individuals who had broadcast background. They were looking for people who, ding, ding, ding. who, right. who had some business experience. And they were looking for people who served the community. So I had all of what I call the plus factors. Right. And I was hometown. I wasn't somebody that saw the opportunity mm-hmm. from somewhere else. And then swooped in. And then swooped in because that's what was happening around the country as well. So I went through the process. I and it became expensive because I had to compete then. So I got a second job and got a third job and I was working in the middle of all that, working family and things started happening. But at the end of the day, I was strongest candidate. Mm-hmm. And so um November 25th of 1991, WROU U92 
went on the air finally after a 10-year struggle in oh, Dallas. that's crazy. So it was, it was great. So what did you want to do with the station? What, did you, what was your vision for it? So because it was taking so long and because I couldn't understand why, if I was supposed to do this, it was such a struggle right. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what I said was I want to have a station that is dedicated to our people and our community. I wanted folks to be able to feel good, to have a voice to be able to celebrate family and individuality and opportunity. I wanted to empower women, black women, and I wanted people to know that God has a purpose for you to to be who you are and what you are and go through what you go through. Because I will tell you, it took me 10 years, but after I started ROU, from the hiring of people to the community events that we had, to the women's conferences, to all the things that I really wanted for this community. From my heart of hearts, I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And it was difficult in a very competitive environment when that's not really the goal of most broadcast no, outlets. It's, it's for profit. They want it, to is, it is for profit. And so um, my, my investors would say, oh my God, you, you, need to be, you need to be working in public radio. You need to be, yeah. and I would say, no, no, no. In order to be able to give our people voice and experience, um, it is a business, and I know that, right. and, and I understand that, and I'm, I'm making it a business, but ultimately, it is about us being able to empower ourselves to be who we are and what we are, mm-hmm. and for us to be able to have opportunities that other people may not have, because you don't know that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little black child from West Dayton. Right. Why would I know that? I didn't know anyone who owned stations. I knew individuals who own businesses. And I think that probably was the difference. You saw examples and you say, well, I can do this. They did that. You know, who's the first person who to open up a, you know, whatever restaurant? Somebody had to be first, right? And I was always an inquisitive child, somewhat mm-hmm. nosy, like a journalist, That's asking a lot of questions. Nosy. Yeah, people yeah. all the time you got to be nosy. Yeah, you got to ask the questions. Right. You got to kind of figure it out. Yeah. And um, so I was really blessed to be able to, I think, self-actualize in that way. And that was before the FCC changed the rules that then allowed the mega owners and the mega stations. And I, I, I fought that as long as I could. And then I, I couldn't fight them anymore. Um, what was that's that decision when, like? To, to, oh, that was now, hard. Now it's owned by Radio 1. Yeah. Oh, did, did you sell it to Radio it, 1? Um, I sold it to, to, to Radio 1. Mm-hmm. And, um, and very honestly, I, I had lots of different offers along the way. I had many opportunities. I just didn't believe that the values that I had and the ethics and the things that I wanted to do for this community, big major corporations and conglomerates, I, I didn't see that uh, around, around the country. Uh, also, the music was changing dramatically. It went from, I think, being a celebratory music opportunity for our young people to really degrading women and our communities in many ways. Did you always ways. play like hip hop or did and you? So we played hip hop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we played urban, urban contemporary, mm-hmm. um, but the music in the industry started changing. So yellow, yellow it, darker. It, it did. Mm-hmm. It did. And so I was, I actually was fighting that as well because I didn't think it was positive for our, our young people. And I, we had a different kind of standard. My, my uh, former employees will tell you that not only the lyrics and the songs, but I didn't want to have um, alcohol as certain day parts because I didn't think it was good for yeah. our kids. So, I mean, we, we would. So you really try to be a, a positive influence in the community. I did because I understood the fact of why we are so hard on ourselves. It is because of the images. I mean, you know this. If right. you study media and you study advertising and you study what it is that makes us who we are and the decisions that we make, it's not a it's not rocket science. 
And so what, how can you, you teach a child to be better than he is? What kind of examples can you set? Right. And so I, I tried to do those kinds of things. That was, that was my goal. That was what I wanted to do as a, as an organization with the kinds of things that we did. Um, we were able, I think, to, to do that celebration in grand style without having all of the negative, negative stuff. Negative what are the things you're still most proud of with, that you come to mind? Because obviously, point of pride for you was having that station. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, Thank you. I, went to... <laughs> <laughs> I think what I'm most proud of, and um, 10 years after, um, after I sold the company, several of my former employees got together and wanted to have a Haas Saunders Broadcast Properties reunion here in Dayton. They all wanted to come back together. And, and so we did. We had a, a, um, a reunion 10-year celebration from the time that I sold out to uh, the fact that we were all family. And what the employees said to me was the things that I required of them helped them to be better today, better parents, better professionals. And so, so what I'm proud of is the fact that I love reading. I love books. It was something that had been passed down to me. So I required our employees to read books, all kinds of books, really? books on management, books on self-empowerment, black books, books. And so I would, I would buy them books and we would have um, retreats and seminars. And, oh, that's and awesome. so, so several of them came back to me. Now they are managers in their places where they have young kids. And so they thanked me for making them read, which they didn't want to do right. at the time. So I'm really proud of that because it, it, it was one particular standard. And the other part that I, I, I think about often is I showed many individuals because of what I had done that it is possible. Just don't give up because it took 10 years. Life changes. Things happen. Life happens. But take your skill sets and be who it is that you can be. And then you can be very proud when you make the next step and the next step. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. Right. So that's what I'm, I'm really proud of. And we had we had lots of different kinds of things back. If you think about it, this is in the 90s. So we had women empowerment conferences that were very, very beneficial to the community at, at, at that particular yeah, time. Yeah, shoulder, so shoulder pads were 80s. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, Easter Sunday with Omega Church, we would broadcast all Sunday morning Easter services from um, the um, University of Dayton Arena, so I'd cancel all other programming because I wanted people who couldn't get out to eat Easter service to be able to experience a live Easter broadcast from a church here in, in, in the community that was, that was special. So um, those things um, are meaningful because we were connecting to community and right. we had food drives, we had clothing drives, and perhaps the best thing that I can, I can think about is with young people, part of the problem was getting, and still the problem, getting our kids to want to take tests standardized tests. And it's different today, but it's the same today. And you have to show up on test day. So we would give, we, the radio station, uh, would give an award to the school, the public school that had the best attendance on test day. We'd take them a a party, we'd take them, we'd take uh, a concert to them. And that got into a whole competitive kind of thing because the kids really then would show up and want to make sure their family showed up and want to take, make sure that mom got them to school mm-hmm. and, and all of that because you and I understand the importance of education. So a connectivity to community. Very first promotion that we did, very first thing we ever gave away um, was a scholarship to Sinclair Community College. Very first radio really? promotion. 
So that was a scholarship was for what, like a person who was interested in journalism, a person, or, or whatever. A person, no, it was a, it was a, it was a promotion that um, we got the McDonald's Corporation to to pay for, and a full scholarship to go to Sinclair for two years to get your associate's degree. So that was before we did any of the all of the other kind of hype and radio promotion kind mm-hmm. of things that we did. Connected to community, connected to education, connected to the voice of our people. That's who we were. And, and too, like I'm sure you met like a bunch of famous people. I in did. Your career. Mm-hmm. That, what do you, who was the best one? I know people always ask me who was the best and most interesting person you ever met. Hmm. I never like talking. I mean, celebrities don't do it for me. But oh, yeah. well, see, that's and and um, uh, I had one of my my announcers that had one of those little autograph books that that you used to have when you were in in um, in school, and he would always have the individuals who would come through or that we would meet to sign his autograph book. Right. And so um, you never know when something is going to end. And I always thought about the fact probably would have been really kind of neat to have had Beyonce or uh, Left Eye uh-huh. or uh, Luther Vandross, you know, because we all these people that, that we met. Um, best person, um, I remember Steve Harvey um, a lot because he was in and out of this this community and he was always willing to do whatever it was that that we asked him to do. And so I'm so proud of him today being able to do all the things. But he was down to earth, easy Mm -hmm. to talk to. And then interesting people, um, Maya Angelou um, coming in for one of our um, special events. I I just think that would be like something that would be mind blowing. um, Yeah, I mean, just 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 being able to connect and to talk to and to um, relate to um, to sort of People and they're real and, and they're down to down. That's to what earth. I like. But when you talk to a person as a person, that's always very um, rewarding, like always very exciting, always very rewarding. It's like when you get down to that human part of it, the value systems mm-hmm. that, that they had. I also the record companies at that particular time were very helpful and very supportive of minority um, companies, minority uh, owned businesses. And um, it was it was a an important time in our community and in our country to be able to, to, to have voice and to be able to get people to hopefully get out and vote and to participate in, in, in all of that. So this is in the mid and late 90s and, and, and all that. So it was pretty cool. So, yeah. yeah. So now you got something very different. Now I am. Back in the theater realm. I am. I am. How did that happen? Well, so I sold my company and um, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do next. Uh, am I going to open up another business? Uh, some folks tried to get me back into radio in a different kind of way. And I said, I'm just going to pause for a moment and let me just pray about this and really think about what I'm going to do. My prayer to God was that I wanted to be able to still do something important for our community. I wanted to be able to help and give voice to something that was important, that back to those roots from the very, very beginning, but also, um, if possible, to help a minority business to, to be able to grow. And so I, I, would, I would say, God, you have to show me what I'm supposed to do next because it's not very clear at <laughs> this point. You could probably done so, many, many things. You know, you could have went this way. You could probably could have retired in Florida if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so not quite that. No, 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 not. But, but I had to work. No, I did have to work. I did have to work. But um, but but I wanted to do something that would, would really satisfy my soul, my spirit and something mm-hmm. I could be passionate about. And a friend of mine was on the board of directors for the Dayton Contemporary Dance Company. And they were looking for a manager, a general manager, executive director at that particular time. They brought my name up to the board and 
So they said, you know, she's trying to figure out what it is that she's going to do next. And we need someone with a business background to come in and to help out the company. They got in touch with me. Um, they didn't know about my theater background because as far as most people knew, I'd just been in broadcasting forever right. and ever. When they got in touch with me, I thought about it and I prayed about it. And I said, well, this is not quite what I had in mind, nonprofit. Uh, I really am thinking about that old lesson from mom and dad that talked about being able to be in a situation where you can make a difference and you can hire people anyway. So I thought, yeah, but nonprofit is not that necessarily right. No, 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 no. It's a whole different kind of mindset. So, um, but I, I, I prayed about it and I knew Geraldine. Um, she was um, not only a colleague, but a, but a sister friend who had a, a real passion for this community the same way I did. We had done a couple of things together. I thought, okay, I we can We should say the people don't know, she's the founder of DCDC. She is, yes. Geraldine Blunden, the, uh, the founder of DCDC, 50 years ago, as a matter of fact. So the board uh, offered me a position, and I said, okay, I will, I will do this for about two years. And um, oh, really? so I will, I will commit to that, and it's then I'm going to do years. some. Um, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Twelve and a half years later. Yeah. But it took longer. And then my personality is such that I can't leave things undone. It took longer. Well, you and took then, 10 years to get the radio station. You're not one that just walks just away. Just walks away. No, <laughs> no. And then um, 2008 happened in this country and nonprofits were going out of business right and left. And it just took more. It, it took more to, to build what was necessary for today's market. It took more to understand a whole new industry. And it really took more to convince this community in, in many ways that we deserve to have our place and space. I love arts, love arts and culture, and I couldn't believe that it was so difficult to get support for something that is so valuable to the essence of who we are as, as a people, as a community, as a culture. And when you think about the rich history in Dayton, to have an international dance company that grew up here, right? you would think that there would be this great embrace. And so it was I was actually kind of in the shadows, like you knew it was there, like people, you know, over there at DCDC, you know, you know, it's there, you know, it's valuable, you know, it's important, but you never really embrace it. You never really embrace it. Mm -hmm. And so that disappointed me. It hurt my heart. And I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to really try to change this. And we need some good, strong partners to be able to do that. And our community was changing because you have all the, the major companies that had moved out. Right. So our support was, was dwindling. So we had to figure out a new business model, Amelia to try to get DCDC back. And that's one of the reasons why it's <laughs> it's taken so long. Now, what is DCDC? It's more than just a dance company. Right? It is. Just, it how is. do you explain to people what it is exactly? Debbie Blunden Diggs is the artistic director, and she is the daughter of our founder, Geraldine Blunden. What Debbie understood that I understand um, growing up in Dayton, Ohio, is that uh, the Dayton Contemporary Dance Company, her mother's dream, was a company founded out of necessity to allow, at that time, little black girls to learn modern contemporary dance at a higher level. And so it, it was a company that was built with the foundation of really giving little black girls an education in terms of dance and movement, which then allows one to understand self-esteem, presentation, the importance of how you present yourself, and to be able to communicate a message via the stage. So that was the beginning. We also had, at that particular time, education programs in the schools. So you would go into the schools, you would expose the, the teachers and the young kids to the art of contemporary dance, 
connecting it to art, just like you connect to mathematics, science, and drawing, and all those other things, which then helps the creativity of the brain. What I saw when I first um, came on board is the fact that we had education, but we needed to grow that particular part of, of our business. And so in addition to the wonderful job, the beautiful job our dancers do on the proscenium stage, we have equally an active education arm. So we hired the first director of education. We became partners with the University of Dayton, Central State University, and Wright State University. We expanded our board of directors to be able to embrace the whole idea of arts-integrated education, taking that creative spirit and being able to then translate it into not only movement, but also learning in terms of curriculum, because everything is connected to numbers, science, and mathematics. What our dancers do, defying sort of the whole <laughs> the concept of being able to jump up and, 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 and be who and what they are in terms of dance art, also takes a skill set. Definitely, and that is science. uh, That's exactly right. Into the body. Yes, right. Do those amazing moves. Yes, and so so how do you connect that? So we did some research. Uh, We had some partners with our our, um, universities, and we are able then to enhance the format of who we are and what we are. So we are connected to this community, not only in terms of dance, not only in terms of education, but also back to part of my initial goals in life, and that is to be able to give voice and power to those who really want to make a difference based upon experience and opportunity. So we have had women's health initiatives to be able to focus on being able to be healthier as uh, versus African-American women and Hispanic women, but women in general, to be able to have a, a life of balance because you understand that stress is a, uh, a killer of of with killer of women, killer of all of us. Right. So what are ways to, it will take you out. So what are ways that you learn to cope with that? So that's movement, relaxation, being able to, to, to get out and to learn something about who you are and the essence of what you are. Our dancers have to be in good health. They have to be, um, they have to practice um, good nutrition in order to be able to perform on a regular basis. And so here we are now taking Geraldine Blunden's dream 50 years ago, to be celebrating the 50th anniversary this year and next for the world-renowned Dayton Contemporary Dance Company. And I am honored to, to be the CEO and to work along with Debbie Blunden Diggs, our fabulous board of directors, and an amazing, hardworking staff to be able to sort of get us here. What do you say to people like playing devil's advocate, like, uh, you know, year 2018, 50 years after it was started, why do we need DCDC? You know, black women can go and dance anywhere they want to now, in theory. Right. So why mm-hmm. do you need these? I think we need an, an opportunity to have dancers to perform on a high level to express themselves and allow their dreams to be able to, to come true as artists. I think we need to have a platform of excellence that says you can be from wherever it is in the world because we have auditions. Our dancers come from all over the United States and sometimes from other countries that have come and been a part of our, our, our dance company to be able to say, even in Dayton, Ohio, you can be all that you want to be and experience life in a certain kind of way. Art allows you to be connected to your past, to be connected to your history, to be connected to people and culture. So you have an opportunity to learn the essence of who you are and what you are and what you can become and how you express yourself through dance art. Contemporary dance is different from the other forms. I mean, we, I, I love all arts, you know, started in theaters. But if you, look at, if you look at ballet, our artists 
have to know ballet. They have to be professionally trained. They have to know about jazz. They know they just have to know all art forms. Understanding that and the essence of that, and then being able to communicate a message, a message of maybe it's hope, uh, a message of maybe it's a possibility, um, maybe it's a message of pain and overcoming uh, adverse conditions. I don't know exactly what the message is all the time, but what we believe that we do um, very, very well and, and better than many is to be able to communicate from the stage the essence of what life is all about today. And so why a DCDC? Why contemporary dance? Because this is an art form that allows for self-expression. It is an art form that allows for, I think, of communicating the essence of living in a, in a beautiful, beautiful format. Thank you so much for coming in here. Thank you for this opportunity to relive my history and to tell the story. I really appreciate it. You, you brought up some things that I hadn't thought about in a long while. So God bless you and thank you. Well, God bless you too. Have a great day. Thanks. Now, boy, wasn't that fun. I really enjoyed talking to Renita Hop Saunders. We have a ton of cool people coming up on the show, so be sure to stop by later. Until then, see you later, alligator. At the wild, crack a Bye-bye.